Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, a world-renowned economics professor, best-selling author, innovative educator, advisor to the United Nations, and global leader in sustainable development. Dr. Sachs discusses pathways for the real estate industry to help achieve UN sustainable development goals, shares thoughts on carbon offsets, and looks ahead to the Biden administration and what to expect in terms of climate policy. Dr. Sachs serves as the director for the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he holds the rank of university professor, the university's highest academic rank. This episode was filmed in October 2020, prior to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for tuning in to Building to Zero, the series where we explore how we can innovate towards a future of carbon neutral real estate. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, a university professor and director of the Center for Sustainable, Sustainable Development at Columbia University. Uh, Dr. Sachs directed the university's Earth Institute from 2002 until 2016. He is also director of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network and a commissioner of the UN Broadband Commission for Development. He's been an advisor to the United Nations Secretary General, uh, currently serves as, the, as an SDG advocate under Secretary General Antonio Guterres, and has twice been named by Time Magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential leaders. So Dr. Sachs, it is a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Good to be with you, Brendan. Thanks. Thanks. For Where having. are you coming in from? I, I'm uh, coming in from the other room. You know, I'm basically in COVID uh, isolation in, uh, in New York. Uh, and uh, I've been uh, in the Upper West Side for uh, several months. Uh, so just hanging out and uh, trying uh, to uh, watch as we get past this uh, horrible pandemic. Well, I am, it's a pleasure to speak to you, with you today and um, excited to talk to you about, obviously, the real estate industry and the increasing role that sustainability is having in that industry. But maybe to start, can you just give people your background and kind of your career and how you developed real leadership in the sustainability movement? Well, I've been a, a professor of economics for 40 years now and uh, have advised governments all over the world uh, during that period on economic strategy. Uh, uh, the more I did that, uh, the more uh, apparent it was that we need in any economic strategy to connect three things. Uh, we need to connect economic development, together with the social justice so that our societies hold together, uh, together with the environmental management so that we have a, a sustainable future. And so over time, uh, I would say that I moved from a rather uh, straightforward economics uh, agenda to a sustainable development agenda. And my professorship at Columbia University over the last 18 years is as professor of sustainable development. Uh, so it's a field that I'm trying to help build, uh, trying to help develop. And I've been advisor to 
three secretaries general of the United Nations uh, around this theme of a holistic integrated strategy that combines what we want from an economy, what we want from a decent society, and what we need environmentally so that we have a planet that is habitable and safe for us. And as you've done that work, obviously a big part of that is being director of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And I know that you're working on a series of papers um, where you outlined what the U.S. would have to do in order to reach truly net zero emissions by 2050. Can you just provide a bit more context around what what those papers look like and what that research looks like and, and what are its key learnings? The basic point is quite clear. Uh, It's actually been clear to the scientists and to people who study this for 30 years. It's uh, not clear to our current president, uh, but um, it's the truth. And that is that uh, human activity is changing and in a way wrecking the climate for humanity through the emission of greenhouse gases. Uh, the most important of which is carbon dioxide, and the most important source of carbon dioxide is fossil fuel energy. Uh, It's been clear since the world signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992 that we have to stop emitting CO2 over time so that we stabilize the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere so that we don't continue to warm the planet dangerously and especially to hit thresholds that could send us into a spiral of a self-feeding, self-propagating release of other greenhouse gases or collapse of ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland that could lead to devastating consequences for humanity. Well, this much has been known, and it's been known for a long time, but politics is slow, vested interests are strong, big oil is a powerful lobby, And so even though the science was screaming, take care, move to renewable energy, the actual politics till this day in the United States is fraught uh, with uh, paralysis, uh, with uh, uh, huge uh, discord in the country, uh, with uh, the fact that uh, Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is the global framework to actually stabilize the greenhouse gas concentrations in order to avoid catastrophe. In December 2015, the whole world agreed that we better avoid at all costs warming that would reach two degrees Celsius relative to the pre-industrial temperatures and aim to uh, limit global warming to less than 1.5 degrees Celsius. What that means is If you take the temperature average for the world uh, at the start of the industrial era around 1800, we've had warming from then till now of approximately 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius there. A lot of technical issues, which uh, we don't have to get involved in of exactly baselines, comparisons, and so on. But it's fair to say that the warming relative to pre-industrial is already about 1.2 degrees Celsius. The science tells us that this is already hugely dangerous. We're already warmer than at any time for any century since the start of civilization itself 10,000 years ago, what we call the Holocene. 
we're already in the danger zone. The red lights are flashing, the forest fires are burning, the extreme storms are evident, the flooding, the droughts, it's happening. So the world set a goal, stop it from reaching 1.5 degrees C, but we're already at 1.1 to 1.2 degrees C, and the warming is roughly at a scale of about 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade. So we're gonna overshoot this goal that we set in 2015 if we don't finally act. And acting means quantitatively to stop the net emissions of greenhouse gases by the middle of this century latest. This is the bottom line. We have to stop emitting CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, other greenhouse gases, net-net by mid-century to have a reasonable chance of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So the simple term is decarbonize. Now, I would say that almost any first-year college student anywhere in the country knows this. Uh, governments around the world know this. Uh, Trump, I don't know what he knows or doesn't know, but he doesn't want to know it, so we don't have a, a national policy like this. And like he said about COVID-19, he says about this, it, it'll get colder or it'll get cooler. It's just absurd at this point. To get to net zero by 2050, though, we need a strategy. We need a plan. We need what I like to call a pathway. In other words, just like we took 30 years to build the interstate highway system from its inception in 1955 onward through several administrations, we need a pathway from 2020 to 2050 that is going to enable us to decarbonize. So for many, many years, I've been uh, helping to lead and orchestrate studies of what that path should look like. And I led a project a few years ago called the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project, which brought together energy experts from 16 countries to look at how this path could be developed for the US, for Canada, for Germany, for India, for China, because this has to be done everywhere, not just in the United States, obviously. And it turns out, good news, we have the technologies to do this. We can find a path that is almost no net cost compared to business as usual with fossil fuels, except that it's going to give us a safe planet, it's going to give us cleaner air, it's going to give us a better living experience. The bottlenecks are not that we lack what to do or how to do it that we don't know or that it's so complex. The bottlenecks really are the vested interests of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, the fact that in every election campaign, if one candidate says we need to move to renewables, the other runs to every state with oil and coal and gas and says, you see, you see, as is happening again in 2020. And we're wrecking the planet as a result of this. Again, it's not only the U.S. It's basically wherever you have a lot of fossil fuels, coal, oil, or natural gas, the politics are pretty tough. Not because there, there is a lack of good alternative, because we've got all the sunshine, all the wind power, we've got a lot of hydro, we've got geothermal, we have so many things to do that are quality, green, safe, 
low-cost energy. The problem really is helping the country to understand the path is vital for our survival. It is not more expensive than what we're doing. It is better for humanity. It's going to be better in many other ways as well. Clean air, less asthma, less uh, chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease, and many, many other things. But we have to overcome the politics of big oil and all of the resistance and lack of understanding and fear-mongering and so on. It turns out when you actually do these pathways, there are more jobs uh, to be had in this new building of the future than in hanging on to the old stuff. Uh, a lot more jobs, millions more jobs, retrofitting buildings, uh, building the new electric vehicles, the new supply chains for uh, the advanced batteries, the photovoltaics, the wind turbines, you name it. There's a lot of good work to be done that's important for building a clean, green future. Uh, and maybe we're going to get to it starting in 2021. Uh, incidentally, uh, California's been leading the way in our country for decades now because California said, we're not waiting for Washington to go forward. We're, we're going to get to zero. And so California's really the home of uh, building the renewables, building the uh, clean buildings, building the electric vehicles, building the smart grids. We need that, but we need it nationally and we need it globally. And when you think about the relative roles and the relative culpabilities and the relative responsibilities of different industries in meeting the UN Sustainable Development Goals, how have you historically conceptualized real estate. And the reason I ask the question is because the real estate industry, I don't think has conceptualized itself as really having an important hand to play in mitigating the climate crisis. And it feels like that has inflected in the last, I would say five years, especially. And so I'm curious, how has that always been seen? Is that, is that just a political transition or a incentives transition that's happened? Or has that always been a focus um, from a public policy perspective? When you do a pathway analysis, which again, I, I do with colleagues for a living, uh, of course, the built environment plays a, a huge role because so much energy is used to heat and cool our buildings, uh, appliances in our lives and our cooking takes place within buildings, residential and commercial. Of course, around buildings is uh, the management of landscape, uh, the city environment, and land use more generally is a crucial issue. Uh, so it's not only urban real estate, but siting of renewable energy uh, is a land issue. Stopping deforestation and other uh, degradation of nature, which on its own is important, but also is implicated in the carbon cycle in how much CO2 we're emitting is also very important. So real estate and the building sector is there in a significant way. When you do a pathway analysis, you can lay out very straightforwardly what needs to be done. And when the goal is to get to net zero emissions, meaning that we're not putting net CO2 into the atmosphere, whatever we put up, we're also absorbing some way. When zero is your baseline, it's pretty clear that everybody has to pitch in, including those who build buildings and operate buildings. So I'll put it this way. All scenarios to get to net zero 
these days around the world share the same framework. And it's basically this. We need our electricity to be zero carbon. That means wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, maybe a little biofuel, but basically the first four uh, are the key. Fortunately, we have plenty of sunshine, a lot of wind. We have the means to reach net zero. Then every user of energy either should electrify using that green electricity or the green electricity, meaning the zero carbon power, should be used to produce synthetic or green fuels that would be used in the downstream energy using sectors. So, for example, almost surely our light duty vehicles, what we call our cars, uh, should be electric vehicles. And we will, I would say, overwhelmingly likely move to an all-electric vehicle fleet. By, say, 2030, all new sales should be EVs. And uh, maybe it'll be 2035. But by 2050, we won't have cars with internal combustion engines. We'll be running our cars on clean, green electricity. What about buildings? Buildings uh, use energy in, in two main ways. One is uh, they use energy uh, through electrification itself. And the second is many buildings uh, burn fossil fuels uh, on site uh, for heating, for example, or they use natural gas for cooking. And uh, Therefore, the building sector has to ask, how are we going to be net zero? How are we going to be uh, green buildings? Now, uh, you know a lot about that more than I do, but I would say that uh, what all the modeling says is first energy efficiency, uh, building shells, uh, 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 insulation, uh, design of, uh, uh, of uh, heating and ventilation systems so that buildings are energy efficient. Uh, then for the energy source, generally moving to all electrification to the maximum extent possible. Heating oil is on its way out. Uh, furnaces uh, and boilers within buildings uh, that are powered by local burning uh, of either uh, natural gas or heating oil, I think will be completely gone from new buildings and largely retrofitted away from old buildings, substituted by uh, heat pumps of various kinds uh, or other kinds of uh, 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 electricity. Uh, we know that window panes uh, now can, in many cases, have solar panels uh, embedded in them. Uh, the, the buildings themselves uh, can uh, be uh, fit uh, in, in many uh, uh, ways uh, with the uh, uh, PV uh, solar. Uh, of course, uh, there are other uh, ways that uh, hot water in certain climates and so forth that can be uh, solar heated. So the idea of zero emission vehicle of uh, zero emission buildings, uh, either because they're all electric on a clean grid, or because they themselves are energy generating and very energy efficient, will dominate. And I think the question for buildings, uh, because they last so long in general, is how do we combine new building codes and standards for all the new buildings to automatically embody this zero emission framework 
with the retrofitting of the millions of existing buildings that are still going to be there in 2050 because buildings are built to last in many contexts for even hundreds of years. So how do we retrofit in a way that uh, we make our uh, entire building stock uh, net zero by mid-century? And, and when you think about kind of something you mentioned earlier, which is that the technology, as you said, exists today, right? The, the, the fundamental technology to take the economy to carbon neutrality exists. One of the interesting paradoxes is that for its outsized contribution to the climate crisis, so real estate, right, responsible for 30% uh, at an operational level of all greenhouse gas emissions, you would expect an enormous investment into the technology that's required to decarbonize the sector. And so you gave the example before of uh, electric cars, right? And tens of billions, really hundreds of billions of dollars have gone into making that a technical possibility at a price point that consumers can buy, at an efficiency level that consumers can accept, and that makes sense to manufacture. However, one of the shocking things from our perspective has been how little the real estate industry has, in fact, invested into climate tech. And I'll just give you the actual stats, and I'm curious as to how you think we change this. But the real estate industry, it's estimated, is going to have to spend somewhere between 15 to $20 trillion to decarbonize itself, to truly reduce its carbon footprint to zero. In the United States, over the last decade, the entire real estate industry has spent less than $100 million into investments into climate tech, the very technologies that will take them there. Clearly, they're not investing fast enough. And so I guess my question is, and this is something I think a lot about, is how do we get them to invest? How do you incentivize and change the behaviors of real estate owners to invest in the very technologies that can actually take them to carbon neutrality? A lot depends on uh, politics. Right now in Europe, uh, all 27 of uh, the European Union countries have adopted the European Green Deal. It says reach net zero emissions by 2050. Every country plus the EU as a whole is now working on the pathway to reach zero. Actually, as we speak now, it happens to be today, whenever this will be broadcast, uh, uh, the day we're speaking, Japan announced reaching net zero by 2050. Big breakthrough, by the way. Uh, at the UN last month, China announced net zero by 2060. I'm trying to help nudge that forward to 2050 because I know that that's necessary from a climate science point of view, but big breakthrough. And interestingly, as soon as that happened, I started receiving studies from really the top most important institutions in China of pathway analysis of how China will reach net zero by 2060. It includes the building sector, it includes transport, it includes industry, it includes power. And it's announced. And when the national leadership said we should do this, uh, all of a sudden, uh, a tremendous amount of analytical work is taking place uh, in the uh, I would say the superb uh, institutions of how this uh, can be done. 
if uh, President, uh, if, if uh, we have President Biden uh, in uh, January uh, 2021, I expect that he will, among his first uh, acts as president, announce uh, the net zero by 2050 goal, consistent with the other leading nations of the world. We won't be first. It won't be heroism in this country. It'll just be what we need to do as part of a world that together needs to save itself. Once that happens, I would imagine that at the next meeting of the next real estate association anywhere in the country, people are going to say, what does this mean for us? Net zero by 2050. I don't even know what that means. And uh, we'll start seeing a tremendous amount of analysis. It means you're going to be designing all electric buildings. It means that suddenly uh, the idea of uh, you know, designing uh, uh, PV and uh, installations uh, within buildings for photovoltaic uh, and, or heat pumps in certain parts of the country and so forth will be uh, a absolutely uh, core to buildings. It means that the real estate industry is going to face some new building codes. Uh, I would expect there will be some federal minimum standards and then states will be uh, adopting new building codes consistent with the zero by 2050 agenda. Then there will be many technological debates because some architects will come up with this design and other engineers will come up with this one. And of course, uh, the right strategy will depend on uh, which part of the country, uh, what kind of uh, landscape and so forth. I would add one more point. The kinds of systems changes that we'll have will go beyond the technical features of the building itself, because we're moving to new kinds of zero carbon systems. We'll have a lot more e-commerce, and this pandemic has been part of that uh, accelerated transition. We're going to have a lot more work from home. Uh, we're going to have uh, autonomy of mobility. We'll have self-driving vehicles in certain contexts, I think without question, because the technology has been there for many years. But redesign of the city landscape will introduce these new technologies. And so the buildings will be part of a broader change of the built environment that will be digital, all electric, green, and I would expect also with hundreds of billions of dollars of federal funding for retrofitting as well, because when you come to the building sector, uh, a lot of the stock in 2050 is going to be the stock we have today, but retrofitted and upgraded. So that'll be a whole market in and of itself, creating green buildings out of buildings today that are heating oil or uh, natural gas uh, uh, powered buildings. And you made the comment earlier that, you know, climate change has become, unfortunately, a politicized issue. And the unique feature of any real estate industry is its hyper-locality, right? The fact that you are dealing with an industry that is almost by definition instantiated in that place, right? So the Los Angeles real estate industry, you can't move it. It's always going to be in Los Angeles and okay. it's always going to be subject to the local rules and regulations in Los Angeles. And because cities tend to be, I would say, more green than national politics, you've seen certain laws, right? So New York and Los Angeles put both of the cities effectively kind of back into 
what are the, the broad standards of, of the Paris Accord. And one of the interesting things that we've seen the real estate industry do in response to that by saying, oh, you have to be uh, net carbon zero, is they've actually gone and purchased a lot of offsets. So as opposed to investing in retrofitting right. or investing in the actual technologies to electrify buildings or to reduce its carbon footprint or eliminate combustion at the asset, instead the money is getting poured into offsets. How do you feel about that? Like meaning we've seen this in other industries before as well, where companies will say, oh, I'm carbon neutral. But in fact, what that just means is, what that just means is you bought a bunch of offsets. What kinds of questions should tenants uh, and public officials and capital markets investors that really care about this issue be asking landlords? Is it as simple as, okay, you're carbon neutral, but how much of that is through offsets and how much of that is through a technological pathway? Offsets are a way of uh, consciousness about these issues without fundamentally solving uh, the problems. Um, I'm not against it in the very early stages, but it doesn't save the planet ultimately. Uh, what we're going to need are truly uh, uh, zero uh, emission economies, including zero emission uh, commercial and residential buildings. Uh, so we'll move beyond offsets uh, quickly. Uh, offsets come when there's the intentionality, but there isn't the clarity of what to do. Uh, and so an offset is a kind of starting point. Uh, nobody should feel bad about that, but it's hardly the end point of this story. What has been missing is leadership. Uh, what's been missing is pathways. What's been missing is a clear strategy uh, that goes beyond a city or uh, a state that really reaches a national scale. So if we have a, a new administration that is committed, as any should be, to reaching net zero by mid-century. What will happen is there'll be a federal goal, but then I believe that because we have a federalist system of states and local governments, uh, there will be a, more or less a federal mandate that states and cities need to move in a particular way and uh, offsets will not be the answer to that. But what will come that hasn't come yet is funding for retrofits. And I would guess uh, federal financing to help underwrite some of the new systems. Interest rates are so low at such rock bottom rates that one of the fundamental ways of financing the low energy transformation in the future will be federal guarantees or underwriting or co-financing or a national infrastructure development bank or similar mechanisms that enable this near zero long-term interest rate that we have right now to uh, be imparted to long-term clean energy investments in whether it's real estate or transport or the industrial sector or the utility sector. So I think things will look different when for the first time in the United States, we have a national policy. Up until now, we've had a forward-looking California and unbelievably, Washington telling California, you can't do that. You can't go so fast. We're going to fight you. And that just leads to paralysis and confusion. 
But if we have a forward-looking national policy that says every state, you have to be at net zero by 2050, your utilities, your building sectors, you have to be ready for an all-electric vehicle uh, fleet and so forth, it will create a tremendous amount of movement. And then with federal financing alongside that, it will change uh, enormously. And one of the things that Americans would realize if we get there as we need to uh, in short order, they would realize more than they do right now that the rest of the world has moved on. Uh, it's not that the U.S. is anyway heroic or leading. We're dragging far behind the other countries right now, which are all still in the Paris Climate Agreement. They're making their investments. They're making their moves. China's developing uh, tremendously many of the uh, new technology and systems pathways. And the United States, uh, I think, will say, oh, my God, we better be in this game uh, much more actively. And the mood will change quickly in this country. That's what I'm counting on. That's what I'm hoping for. And what's the role, you think, of, say, the average tenant, right? Whether that's a commercial tenant or a residential tenant, and anyone that's truly passionate about this issue. What's their role in, in driving this change and, and in particular holding the real estate industry accountable? As always uh, in these early stages, uh, leaders, whether they're consumers or entrepreneurs or uh, on the uh, supply side, play a role when they say, I want to live in a clean building or I want to buy real estate that is not going to uh, be a part of our stranded assets in the future because it's been connected the wrong way or is likely to lose property values because it's a, a fossil fuel burning building. And so an aware uh, clientele is uh, extremely important. It, it will raise the attention, obviously, of the real estate developers, uh, the project designers, the architects uh, with whom I speak often, uh, the urban and landscape designers with whom I speak often, uh, the more there is the groundswell of support, it changes everything. It changes the politics. It changes the conversation on the ground. Uh, it uh, makes us uh, able to move. But I would say in a few years, it won't really be a choice. You'll buy a building and it'll be an all-electric building, basically. It's going to be a zero-emitting building because there will be building codes in the end that are going to be standardized. Uh, and are going to enforce a transition. Uh, if people remember back to the ozone depletion, when we had the CFCs, the chlorofluorocarbons, and uh, they were uh, destroying the ozone and threatening uh, the whole world with the uh, uh, cancer epidemic and many other terrible consequences of ozone depletion, uh, at the beginning, there was the debate like we had now, but there were technology alternatives to the CFCs that were not ozone depleting. And in the end, you couldn't buy a refrigerator that used CFCs anymore. They were just written out of the script. Uh, in other words, all appliances, uh, all of the refrigeration, all of the other technologies that were using chlorofluorocarbons had to convert. And I think that that will be the experience for any of us. We will live in a different kind of building in the future 
with a different kind of power supply. But for most of us, we'll hardly know. The, we'll turn on the light switch, the electricity will still be there. We won't really be aware that it's coming from photovoltaic panels uh, embedded into the uh, windows of the building uh, or on the roof, or that it's coming from uh, a, a large utility scale photovoltaic field uh, 50 miles uh, from where we are. We'll just know the electricity works the same way it always used to, but now it's clean. When we get hot water uh, out of uh, the, the tap, uh, we'll not really know that uh, we're using uh, electric heat pumps for uh, the heating uh, in the building, uh, both heating and ventilation and uh, hot water and so forth. So most of us aren't really so aware of the technologies around us. We want a car that we can get in that's going to take us someplace, and whether it's an internal combustion engine under the hood or a, a, an electric vehicle, we want to know that it can get us someplace safely and comfortably. And I think that that's a lot of the transformation ahead, which is that we'll continue to enjoy our lives, we'll fly airplanes, we'll use electricity, we'll be in vehicles, but they're not going to be emitting vehicles. We're going to be using zero carbon technologies to accomplish even better what we have been accomplishing using fossil fuels. Uh, and in this sense, good that consumers know and they make the demand and they want a safe world and especially citizens know that so they vote for the politicians that are going to help preserve our climate and our environmental safety but the quality of our lives will still go on because we're going to be using uh, similar kinds of services they'll just be better than they are right now actually well, Dr. Sachs, this has been so interesting to get your perspective, um, and I've really enjoyed this. This has been its interesting just to hear how there is this kind of technological transition that we all know is afoot, and the role that tenants in instigating change in the real estate industry have in, in, in shaping that and influencing that. And I would just say to you, thank you for your leadership in this, and also, uh, assuming and I'm hoping and I'm counting on us having our own political transition in the United States very soon, the industry should really speak up and say, we're ready to be partners. Uh, here are you're our- talking about the, You're talking about the real estate industry. The real estate industry. Here are our practical issues. We build buildings, we do developments. Uh, we need to provide the following services, but we want to be part of the solutions. And I think that this absolutely will galvanize new kinds of financing, new kinds of programs that will greatly accelerate the transformation faster than people can imagine now. So I'm, I'm really excited about the industry leadership, and I think we're going to have a chance for some real breakthroughs. I hope so too. Well, Dr. Sachs, thank you so much. Um, great, great to be with you. Thank, for thanks a lot. watching, uh, feel free to subscribe. We'll have more fascinating guests like Dr. Sachs on Building to Zero. But thank you very much, Doctor. Great. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.